This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is White Skin, Black Fuel, On the Danger of Fossil Fascism, by Andreas Malm and the Zetkin Collective. In the first study of the far right's role in the climate crisis, White Skin, Black Fuel presents an eye-opening sweep of a novel political constellation, revealing its deep historical roots. Fossil-fueled technologies were born steeped in racism. No one loved them more passionately than the classical fascists. Now, right-wing forces have risen to the surface, some professing to have the solution, closing borders to save the nation as the climate breaks down. White Skin, Black Fuel, On the Danger of Fossil Fascism, by Andreas Malm and the Zetkin Collective. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Biden did something good. He pulled U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, finally ending the longest of America's forever wars just under 20 years after it began. There are no doubt fair criticisms, whether of the U.S. handling of Afghan refugees or the fact that a U.S. drone strike incinerated an Afghan family in what was purportedly a strike on ISIS. But make no mistake— What we are seeing the past few weeks in the U.S. media is a nearly wall-to-wall echo chamber attacking Biden for ending the war, pretending, without offering real evidence, that the U.S. losing a war can somehow look like the U.S. winning it. That's what I'm discussing today with Adam Johnson and Eric Levitz. That and a lot more. Before we get started, please take a moment, a quick moment, to support The Dig financially with a modest contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. If you like the dig and depend upon us for our analysis, please know that we rely upon you, our listeners, to make this thing happen. We have books, mugs, tote bags to send you in the mail. We also, coming very soon sometime this month, we will have a weekly email newsletter to send you, putting the latest show in context and providing ideas for further reading. We do not pay well any episodes, but we can only afford to do that because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. Even $5 a month, it goes a really long way when a bunch of those $5 a month contributions are all added together. So please add your $5 to the mix or however much you can contribute. Consider the garbage that has flooded the country's newspapers and cable news desks over the past couple weeks. And please take a moment to support the independent media that you depend upon and get our weekly newsletter. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Adam Johnson and Eric Levitz. Adam Johnson is co-host of the excellent podcast, Citations Needed, and the writer at a brand new substack called The Column. Eric Levitz is a senior writer for New York Magazine's Intelligencer. 
I will link to both of their articles on media coverage of the withdrawal in the show notes, and I'll also link to Adam's new Substack, which you should sign up for. Adam Johnson and Eric Levitz, welcome to The Dig. Uh, thanks for having me. I am also grateful to uh, to be on the podcast. <laughs> Eric, you write, quote, Ostensibly neutral correspondents and anchors have, one, openly editorialized against the White House's policy. Two, assigned Biden near total responsibility for the final collapse of the proto-failed state his predecessors had established. And then three, reported on the potential political costs of Biden's actions as though they were not actively imposing those costs through their own speculations about just how politically damaging the president's failures of competence and empathy would prove to be. What does this nearly wall-to-wall media echo chamber look like, particularly for those listeners who haven't been watching or reading mainstream news accounts? How has it come together so quickly and uniformly? And then what might actual journalism on the withdrawal from Afghanistan look like instead? Yeah, those are obviously big questions. I, I think that, you know, one grounding thing that I think is just critical for understanding and uh, analyzing the media response to the withdrawal from Afghanistan is, uh, you know, this this brute fact that uh, I believe was was mentioned in a Jacobin piece by Branko Marsetic that, you know, in, in, in 2020, the major news networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, devoted a, a grand total of five minutes of coverage in their evening newscasts to Afghanistan, to the war that was going on there. And I think that that's obviously 2020 had exceptional degree of, of other pressing news concerns for U.S. viewers. Um, nonetheless, that's broadly characteristic of the past several years of coverage uh, of the war in Afghanistan, which has really occupied um, almost no place in the popular imaginary. Now, what we're seeing when Biden moves to uh, withdraw troops from Afghanistan, uh, suddenly the, the violence that has been you know, really endemic uh, in that country for this entire time is suddenly... Um, qualifying as newsworthy and as something that the president of the United States needs to answer for. And, and so that's, I think, one one major aspect of, of what we've been seeing. But, you know, it's been sort of uh, across the board in terms of this is obviously framing cable coverage, both what is being covered and the, the tenor of uh, discussion in, in which Jake Tapper and, and the other uh, major media anchors have been assuming this adversarial posture that they have had largely suspended for for much of the early Biden uh, administration and really sort of relishing in holding um, the White House to account for uh, every sort of uh, negative event in Kabul. You did blow back, blow through that deadline. We did have troops uh, there after uh, May 1st. Um, But I think, again, the issue here is not just the withdrawal of U.S. forces. It's how they were withdrawn. Uh, the the rapidity, the the hastiness. Um, President Obama's former ambassador to Afghanistan, Ryan Crocker, he called the way this was done, quote, a handover to the Taliban. And, quote, we have hung them out to dry about the Afghan people. people. Crocker continued, quote, I'm left with some grave questions in my mind about Biden's ability to lead our nation as commander in chief to have read this so wrong or even worse, to have understood what was likely to happen and not care, unquote. Does President Biden not bear the blame 
for this disastrous exit from Afghanistan. Simultaneously, though, you've seen on Twitter really just straightforward um, advocacy from correspondents, uh, reporters who, uh, you know, hold non-opining roles. So you have Declan Walsh, the New York Times chief Africa correspondent, tweeting uh, shortly before the Taliban's final victory that Jalalabad gone, only Kabul left. Uh, for those who lamented forever wars, is the phrase anything more than a comforting cop-out for epic failures of policy and the imagination? Here's what the end looks like. And so sort of straightforwardly saying that he has sort of contempt for those who refer to Afghanistan and, and broader U.S. deployments in the Middle East as forever wars and, you know, for those who, who believe that those wars actually should not be um, extended indefinitely. You had Richard Engel of NBC, their, their chief foreign correspondent, um, tweeting shortly after, I think, Biden announced that he was in contact with Taliban leadership in um, coordinating the evacuation. Biden says U.S. is in constant contact with Taliban to get safe passage to airport. So U.S. asking former enemy, the Taliban, to please allow us to get our people out while they take the country, you know, which, which struck me as sort of the kind of framing that you would expect on Limbaugh or, uh, you know, Tucker or just generally the, the right wing media uh, apparatus, this idea that the U.S. is um, debasing itself, that Biden has made us weak and now we are groveling at the feet of our enemies, when in fact there remains this, uh, the, the power relationship between the U.S. government and uh, the Taliban. You know, it's not the case that we're just begging at their feet. Uh, unfortunately, there's, you know, already significant movement within the U.S. policymaking apparatus to uh, really throttle Afghanistan, uh, but, you know, by extension, the Taliban regime with, with sanctions. So it's not that Biden is asking, please allow us. It's, it's you know, Biden more or less threatening economic warfare if, if any harm comes to U.S. nationals. This question comes up a lot, like why, <laughs> you know? And I think there's a, there's, there is many factors. I want to touch on one, what I'm, this is a generalization. There are exceptions, but there's a, the, the sort of mass psychological mechanism, I, for lack of a better term, is that most of these kind of big pundits, the people who get these, you know, chief White House correspondent, chief Middle East correspondent, whatever job at, you know, New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, these kind of prestige assignments, uh, prestige assignments, the Jake Tappers, they view themselves, and I, I talked about this on Twitter, they view themselves as being these bold truth tellers, these kind of, you know, they all want to be Ed Murrow and Walter Cronkite. That's how they kind of, that's this kind of self-regard they have for themselves. But for the most part, they're mostly just kind of repeating what police departments, CIA, FBI, Pentagon, Chamber of Commerce tell them. Uh, I mean, it's mostly just sort of boilerplate, pro-police, pro-imperialist propaganda. And so for the most part, they're kind of in line with power. Now, there are very rare exceptions where presidents go rogue because sometimes they do that. They say, you know what, I got elected... I'm 78 years old. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do what I want. There, there are two points in which they do that, that you really see this kind of fervent pushback. And this is where someone like Jake Tapper really made his name in journalism, which is deficits in anything involving uh, de-escalation or demilitarization. To be clear, the war in Afghanistan is not ending. The U.S. will still be drone bombing people probably till I'm, I'm 85 years old. But it's a meaningful de-escalation. And we know that because there's a huge blob meltdown. If there wasn't a huge blob meltdown, it wouldn't be meaningful, Right. It's sort of evidence that it's meaningful. And so they, they're presented with a really good opportunity then to do what they love to do more than anything, which is to look like they're taking on power, criticizing Biden. But really what they're doing is they're just being towel boys for the national security establishment by um, attacking him on this. Just like the, the one thing they really went after Obama on was deficits. 
And the parallels, I think, with the media meltdown over this and uh, the North Korea summits that that Trump did, because Trump sort of was had this very anti-Obama, narcissistic, I'm going to bring peace to Korea thing, right? Motives were bad, but the left in South Korea wanted it, and they loved it, and it was directed by the left in South Korea, uh, specifically uh, the president of South Korea. And this was, he broke every single taboo in the book, right? Having a, you know, you're, oh, the, North, the North Korean flag is in the same position as the American flag. There was a whole week, week, weeks-long meltdown for both of those high-profile summits. And the, what's at work is similar, which is they can look like they're challenging power, but really what they're doing is they're just uh, cementing the narrative around what the consensus of the so-called blob or national security consensus is, which I've been told several times this week is totally not real. Uh, it's a made-up conspiracy theory by wacky left-wing people. So the fact that 99% of all of them have the same opinion is just a coincidence. They just you know, sat, poured over all the documents and, 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 and really studied hard the, 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 the various options, and they all determined that, that keeping a residual force was, in fact, good on its own rights. And one of the things that's exposed by this the last few weeks, because you have a very rare event where the anti-war left and the diehard, diehard partisan Biden loyalist media – are basically teaming up to defend Biden. And Biden needs to be defended on this. Um, and I understand some people have genuine criticisms, and, I, and we can talk about that later. But the reason why is because the meltdown very much is about sending a message to the next president who tries to withdraw from an unpopular war, unpopular occupation, whether that be the U.S. supports unconditional, uh, U.S.'s unconditional support of Israel, whether it be Syria, Iraq, you know, multiple military bases throughout the Middle East, Central Asia, uh, dozens of countries in Africa, that there will be a political price to pay if one attempts to do that. Because again, these things are not popular. They are popular with Beltway national security types, those on the those on the dole of national security money, which is pretty much every think tank consultancy firm, the revolving door of the State Department. And think tanks and consultancy firms that this is this is their fucking gravy train. And if don't and make no mistake, Afghanistan was a gravy train every single fucking year. And the vast majority of money that went went into quote unquote Afghanistan was was lining the pockets in um, Arlington, Virginia, in Maryland, in in New York, and Connecticut. It was basically just churning the cream until it rose to the top to to about five counties in Virginia, New York, and Connecticut. And weapons manufacturers in Arizona and California, et cetera. So this is a gravy train. And for whatever reason, I think there was probably some division in the Pentagon. It looks like from the laundromats that the various intelligence agencies in the State Department, UCIA, State Department, that they didn't want to leave. But it seems like the army or the military was kind of divided. And Biden sort of said, you know what, this isn't popular um, I want to pivot our resources to other wars, other 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 forward positions in, in, in you know China and, and, and J- Japan and in various places. Because again, make no mistake, Biden's not a dove, but he's always been a bit of a wild card. I mean, this is someone who theoretically said he backed the Contras, but then opposed, but then also opposed was was leading oppo- uh, opposing apartheid in South Africa. Which you know people make jokes about that, but he really was. If you go back and look at archival footage in the eighties, he was very ahead of everyone on apartheid. And he voted against the the, uh, the Gulf War, despite voting for the Iraq War. So he's always kind of been a little bit eccentric, as a lot of you know politicians are. Um, but the mass psychology at work here is that they get to sort of do their Ed Morrow routine, because, you know, you know, nobody loves doing this more than Jake Tapper, right? Sort of mug and the troops and accountability. He did this with Obama on the deficit. You go back and look at those press conferences, from 2009, 2010, and he's just grilling Jay Carney about, about debt and deficits. What about the debt and deficits? President, when he spoke to Nova, uh, students and faculty earlier today acknowledged that the numbers in the budget were so big they were difficult to, to talk about. And 
to, to break them down, it would be along the lines of a family that makes $29,000 a year, spending $38,000 a year, so taking on $9,000 in new debt, with a $153,000 credit card bill that they were not able to pay down. That would be a way for like, the average American to afford it, to understand it. Does that seem responsible? This, this provided ample opportunity to do that. Um, another factor um, as well is that a whole generation of reporters, you know, reportage and prestige journalists cut their teeth in Afghanistan. It was sort of the sort of military version of doing your six months backpacking in Europe. It's kind of the thing you did to, get, to give yourself some gravitas and to not look like just another brown grad, right? Oh, I did my, I did my tour. I, you know, I, have you been to Afghanistan? I've been to Afghanistan. It's like, okay, so you'd sort of do the, the Pete Buttigieg. You, you know, either you do it through some consultancy firm or you join the National Guard or, or you go as a reporter and you kind of do your tour. Uh, this was also true of the British Empire, by the way. It was seen, the, the elites were, were expected to do their token six months in some northwestern frontier, or some forward position in India or Burma. Like this is a normal thing for our elite class to want to do. And so when you go there and you do the little... You know, you hang out with the, the the consultants and the contractors and the, you know, the military brass. They're very good at handling journalists. Uh, you do the bleeding heart NGO tour, um, which is why all of them appear to think the military is a girls' education program with guns. And they kind of buy in ideologically. They buy into the nation-building project. And I think some of them come about it honestly. I think they're just, you know, they don't really, they either deliberately or, or, or subconsciously overlook the, the, the other side of the ledger, which is that um, this civil war is extremely violent. 8,820 Afghan civilians died last year in this, in this conflict. Obviously, there was just the drone bombing the other day that killed uh, seven children, probably more, 10 members of the same family. That's just one example. That that part of the ledger of a continued conflict with the Taliban, and make no mistake, the U.S. was never going to ever, 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 ever defeat the Taliban. It was never going to happen. Literally, they could have a forever war. They could have a war for the forever time, this <laughs> 10,000 years. They could sign one of those contracts, the, the, the Scientologists, for a billion years. It wouldn't matter. That, that was viewed as, that was not part of their ledger because they never, that was never part of their tour. It was never part of their ideological conditioning. And so we got this very sanitized, as Eric talks about, this very kind of sanitized one side of the war that really gave people the impression that this was a women's liberation movement that happened to have predator drones. Eric, you write that the media, quote, biases neither liberal nor conservative. One might call it imperial in not a wholly pejorative sense. It is a point of view that, one, assumes the U.S. can and should exert decisive influence over global events. Two, aims to lift Americans out of their parochial nationalism and into a cosmopolitan sense of moral obligation. And three, privileges suffering caused by American inaction— over suffering caused by American military engagement. Let's start with number one, this bedrock hegemonic presumption that the U.S. can and should and maybe must be the decisive force shaping world events. How does the media manage to convey this not as an argument, but more insidiously as a fundamental, unacknowledged, maybe even subconscious premise of their coverage. How does that work? Yeah, so I, I think that it manifests in terms of this kind of presumption, and I think it really is inextricable from the media's tendency to really weight the suffering caused by American inaction abroad over that caused by American military engagement, really tied in to the notion that when there is suffering uh, in a place where the American military and, and parts of the national security establishment 
are very interested in increasing, escalating American engagement, this suffering suddenly becomes a problem that, that demands American involvement and that by presumption can be resolved through the extension of American power. And so we saw during, you know, both the Obama and Trump eras, you know, a real sensitivity within the U.S. media towards the suffering of uh, the Syrian people during the, the, the Syrian civil war. And, you know, when, uh, you know, Assad committed real human rights violations against that population, we saw there that in that context, the notion that, that the U.S. can do something and it's not doing something becomes a subject of real intense moral fervor within uh, the mainstream media. Well, yeah, I'm sorry, but the, the U.S. did do something in Syria. We spent about a billion dollars arming opposition fighters a, a year. Of course. Right. Of course so th- that, that was one of the great sort of like back and forth with that war. Like we sat, they wanted to have this Rwanda narrative, but it didn't, it didn't really fit. No, it didn't fit whatsoever. I mean, we, we, we perpetuated the civil war, um, you know, without... And then we bombed ISIS, so... Right. But we were not, uh, the involvement was not at the level that the, the national security establishment Correct. wanted. Um, and then this, this form of, of suffering then really commanded the media's attention and imagination. You know, at the same time now, when there is this um, real, real losses that are going to be assumed by um, urban dwelling Afghan women um, in terms of uh, their, uh, you know, I mean, we, we right now we have these sort of gestures towards, you know, we're Taliban 2.0, things are going to be uh, not not so bad. But it, it seems very likely that the, the status in society of Afghan women um, in Kabul is going to proceed in a direction that, that is offensive to, to, I think, common uh, egalitarian liberal uh, values. And that's really commanding a lot of attention. There is an assumption, a presumption in the media that the U.S. should be able to change that reality um, at a really acceptable humanitarian cost. At the same time, we have, you know, as we speak, a tremendous amount of vaccines in the United States that are expiring before their use. And even, you know, I think the laudable movement towards supplying booster shots to increase uh, the immunity of the population here, you know, at the same time, we're going to be giving out booster shots to Americans when you have this pandemic that's killing millions of people um, overseas. And that that instance in which American power can really actually make a humanitarian difference in the world does not seem to command uh, the, the, the same level of, of interest and, and outrage uh, within uh, the mainstream press. Yeah. And a lot, I mean, a lot, look, a lot of this comes down to like Elite journalists, reporters, editorial boards, there's a fundamental, this is kind of Noam Chomsky 101, is that the U.S. is at worst a bumbling empire and at best a humanitarian organization, whereas our enemy states, <laughs> Iran, China, Russia, they're seen to have black hearts and their motives are always seen as cynical, which I think is the correct way to read all country, any nation state's motives. The problem is, is we only do it one way. I'll read you from the New York Times editorial on, on Biden's uh, withdrawal. Quote, the rapid conquest of the capital Kabul by the Taliban after two decades of a staggering, staggeringly expensive bloody effort to establish a secular government with functioning security forces in Afghanistan is above all utterly tragic. Tragic, tragic because the American dream of being the indispensable nation and shaping a world where the val- values of civil rights, women's empowerment, and religious tolerance rule proved to be just that, a dream. So this is an opening paragraph of the New York Times editorial board written by 13 presumably adults. I, you know, this is, a, <laughs> this is a seventh grade social studies report. I mean, we're talking about the, the, the height of credulity here for various reasons. Number one, the U.S. is presented as, centered as the victim here, right? 
that we are no, that this is a shot to our, our status as the indispensable nation. So we're already the U.S. is presented as the victim. But then you have this idea that you, this goes to motive, this goes to intent. We assume the U.S. was there for women's rights and secular nation building and civil rights, whatever that means in this context. It never occurs to the New York Times after the you know 850th time in which these nominal values are not represented by actual actions to think maybe that's not really the motive. Maybe that's kind of retconned PR or kind of an afterthought or maybe – you know, sort of like the way that she, you know Chevron gives five percent away to some green groups. It's it's a it's a PR ass covering, which which I think most again, if China, or Russia, or anyone else had these kind of lofty moral motives, we would be skeptical of them because what you know isn't that rather convenient um, in terms of uh, you know having having military bases on both sides of of Iran, and yet this constant framing of U.S. as this as this humanitarian organization that sort of means well and wants to promote women's rights, I think. Is, is the fundamental issue here, which I'm sorry to say, like if you're talking, if you're going to put it in kind of patho uh, pathological terms, it's just, it's just racism. It's just imperialism. It's just jingoism. Uh, every empire thinks that they're morally superior to the other empires. You know, people say, oh, we're not as morally superior to Sweden, but Sweden doesn't really challenge our hegemony. So who gives a fuck, right? And so, you know, <laughs> what's important is that we're always morally on a higher plane than our main competitors. Again, not, not non-factors like fucking Guatemala, but when it comes to Russia, China, Iran, people that threaten our interests, it's always important that there's this moral delineation. We talk about Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad as a sort of good example of this, because you know, he wrote the, the quintessential criticism of Belgian imperialism in Africa. I mean, just a, a scathing moral indictment on the, on the humanitarian disaster of, of the Congo. And this is mentioned in King Leopold's Ghost that Joseph Conrad, you know, who wrote this, this kind of really morally urgent cr critique of the Belgian Empire, was himself a huge fan of and promoter of British imperialism, which he viewed as being morally superior to that of King Leopold II. Who knows? Maybe it was. You know, in many ways it may have been, right? And just as King Leopold II framed his empire as liberating those in Central Africa from their African, uh, from their uh, Arab slave traders who had come down and had been kidnapping Africans in Congo for, for many, many decades, if not centuries. And so there's always this sort of other bad thing we have to do. And again, you can go read tracks from 1896, as we just did on a recent episode um, uh, from the AP about how the, the, the headline is a, a shining light in, in India. And it's about British efforts to undermine the oppressive Mohammedan rule uh, of of Hindus uh, in India and how the British were 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 preventing things like you know child marriage and and, and promoting ch you know women's education uh, in India and this was therefore why they should be in India. Now were the British colonialists uh, morally morally preferable to to the Mohammedan overlords? I I don't know, but does that de does that justify or defend or explain away? British imperialism in India. Fuck no, of course not, right? So there's always these these sort of retconned humanitarian pretenses. The, the reality is that the U.S. was in Afghanistan, uh, maybe not past a certain point, but I think fundamentally, for geopolitical reasons. They had geopolitical and strategic reasons to be there, uh, of which we can, we can talk about those. And then everything that sort of followed from that, whether it be the British imperialism in Africa, British imperialism in India, was was a kind of latched on uh, white man's burden kind of civilizing mission uh, shtick. And so what you have is people who internalize that civilian that civilizing mission, and view the U.S. as a secular progressive group. And 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 and, and Eric's right. Like, look, fundamentally, this is we can be Chomsky and uh, cynics all we want, but it is true that on a basic human level, that 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 the Taliban taking over urban liberal parts of the city, relatively liberal parts of the city, is bad for women. I think that's that's probably objectively true. We have to be honest about that. I think that the, the problem is that we only get that part of the equation. We only get that side of the ledger. We don't get, and people have talked about this 
a great deal, this kind of rural uh, urban divide, how violent the, the war has been in the rural parts of the country, which is, you know, 80% of the country has been completely memory hold. We don't talk about, and we just had a reminder of the drone strike that killed 10, uh, a family of 10, including seven children. You know, how many of those girls that were killed in that drone strike are going to have an opportunity to get, to get educated? You can't get educated if you're not alive. And the tens of thousands of people who've died in this war has a cost too. And that cost is entirely removed from the, the conversation for the most part. And there have been some efforts to push back against that. But for the most parts, all we, all we see is this kind of liberating, civilizing mission. And intent matters, motive matters. And, and there is very little historical evidence that in any systemic or meaningful way, the U.S. is at all concerned with human rights, other than as a PR, in the same way that, again, Chevron's concerned with alternative energy. It's, a, it's maybe slightly insincere, but mostly it's just PR. And we have, to, we have to be sober about that because, again, we would never afford this level of credulity to any other country. Yeah, I think that perhaps like the most revealing and remarkable thing missing from media coverage is almost any consideration of the fact that the Taliban victory means that the war is over, at least the war as we've known it for the past two decades. And that means hopefully, that huge number of huge numbers of Afghans don't have to keep dying every day in an unwinnable war. Well, that's what poll after poll after poll shows. The poll after poll after poll shows that they don't they don't they just want the war to fucking end. And like, you know, people keep talking about this middle ground presence or whatever. And the middle ground presence is a violation of the terms laid out with the Taliban and would have been prolonging the war. There is, there, is, there is no middle ground. When you lose a war, which the U.S. militarily has, you fucking lose. The reason why it looks like the fall of Saigon is because the fall of Saigon looks like what happens when you lose. You don't get to determine, you don't get to say, Taliban, look, you need to give us like six months, maybe four. This isn't like a you know, job exit interview where you say, you know, can, I get, can you give me a letter of recommendation for the next imperial incursion? I mean, you fucking lose, you're out. That's it. And it's not going to be pretty. And to the extent to which... We can debate whether or not they should have done this or done that, and I, that's perfectly fine. But like, basically, that's what it looks like to lose. Yeah, and it's not just a matter of Afghan civilians, which this has been a charnel house for for two decades, but Afghan forces who are dying in huge numbers, can, total cannon fodder in an unwinnable war, and also Taliban forces who were also dying in huge numbers and who are, contrary to the American calculus, human beings as well. But Eric, as you write, quote, countless reporters and commentators have cited the relatively low U.S. casualties in Afghanistan in recent years as proof that maintaining the status quo was a near cost free proposition. Pretty interesting coming from the same sort of media commentators and sources who claim that their commitment to staying in Afghanistan is to protect Afghan lives. Yeah, I mean, I think that the irony there is is really quite pointed. And I would note also just that the difference between the way that things transpired, or not the, the difference, but a difference between the way that things ultimately transpired and um, what is understood as the crisis of Biden's withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan and the way that the Biden administration had assumed and hoped that things would go, you know, that, that difference, uh, as Adam suggests, is not altogether negative, right? So the ideal situation from the perspective of the U U.S. was that you know, their estimates were that basically the Afghan government in Kabul will hold for maybe two years. So the the idea was that we could have this interim where we have withdrawn and the state is still sort of standing there. And so our abject failure is not totally clear. Um, and we can sort of blame it on, well, you know, we left them something that worked. They screwed it up in those two years and then it fell apart. Um, and this would be more sort of psychologically uh, a more you know, pleasing way for this to transpire for uh, the U.S. and its, its domestic public and its mass media. 
but what what's ultimately as we're saying there is actually we wanted to arrive at the same fundamental outcome, but with a little bit more bloodletting first, with two years more, right? Uh, you know, in terms, and I think that that's the biggest argument for as more information has come out, it seems like things could have gone um, somewhat smoother than they did if uh, you know uh, President Ghani had not fled uh, the country uh, while they had this kind of um, agreement uh, negotiation. Uh, for the transition uh, in place, and, and the Taliban was not yet certain how easily it would be able to take Kabul. But none, nonetheless, this is not the worst that it could have gone because the way that it went was, you know, fairly bloodless for the conclusion to a civil war. And so, yeah, I, and, and that is completely not at all really considered in in this coverage. And, and as you suggest, you know, uh, just uh, in that, um, I believe it was in the Peter Baker piece that Adam ably dissected today where where David Petraeus um you know was arguing that there was in fact a middle ground that Biden did not consider between <laughs> all in and all out uh and you know that we could have in a very sustainable cost in blood and treasure uh, continued this uh for quite a while because we had you know with Afghans fighting on the front lines and us like in our drone pods or however that works you know we we could really keep this thing going and it would be uh you know uh, and, and this is the humanitarian understanding of, of how things should have gone forward, uh, according to the sort of pro-war side of things. I mean, you you, you talk about the the, the complete ignore, you know refusal to acknowledge any opportunity cost with respect to staying in, um, and don't make no mistake, all these middle ground people. It's a clear violation of the terms. It would have been the same thing as before. They they keep trying to spin it as this like uh, occupation light, you know, half the calories. And one of the things that led to one of the absolute most psychotic things I've ever read. And I keep rereading it just with my jaw on the floor, that Peter Baker piece. Peter Baker write, writes, and he's, these are clearly lines that are getting fed to him from these these weapons contractor think tanks or generals. Quote, fewer than 100 American troops died in combat in Afghanistan over the past five years, roughly the equivalent of the number of Americans currently dying from COVID-19 every two hours. Oh, well, then never mind. <laughs> Americans, you love to um, die these days. <laughs> I, I would love, yeah, I would like Peter B- Baker to write a to write a, a letter to the to the families of the 100 American troops who died saying, hey, your son was 0.03 COVID hours. Oh, Just put it in perspective. Okay, and then to, you yeah. know, I was like, well. I mean, what a what a what a fucking craven thing to say. Just say nothing of the fact that, of course, uh, you know, it, almost ten thousand Afghans died the prior year. I mean, how many COVID hours is that? I guess that's only maybe a, maybe a day. I don't. I, I'm not good at math. But like, so this is how we're going to talk about these things now. I guess COVID has changed the moral equation. Now it's just life is cheap. And um, I mean, that 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 is just um, that is what anyone who's ever worked in marketing. That is marketing. That is a marketing line. That's a sales line. You know, just a little bit of uh, uh, body bags coming home, you know, as a treat. And it's all, it's all it costs, you know, just no money. You can't afford not to stay in Afghanistan. I mean, he's a sales pitch. And it's no wonder that he talked to, exclusively talked to weapons contractors, uh, because that's, that's what, that's a sales pitch to keep the gravy train going. I mean, these, these companies have multi-billion dollar contracts in Afghanistan. This is not, you know, you don't need a fucking quo bono conspiracy fucking chalk, you know, uh, a, a true detective conspiracy shed with, you know, red yarn going through to see the fucking causality here. I mean... There, there was Afghanistan was the biggest fucking gravy train that happened to the military industrial complex in, in my lifetime. I mean, it's just nonstop check writing, and you know, some faction of the security state got fed up with it, wanted to refocus their priorities to other gravy trains in East Asia and, and maybe Latin America, and they're they fl- they're flipping out because it was it was the I mean, these are people who built entire careers. So they you know, second houses and. In Virginia and 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 lake houses in Colorado were built on this war, and like 
this is a sales Peter Baker's piece was a sales pitch. And and a lot of these things are sales pitches. Just a little bit of American death. You know, these these fucking kids who died, look at their ages. 20, 20, 20, 20, 19 years old. And this bombing. This is who's been dying in this war for 20 years, you know, not to make not to totally not to be too sentimental. You know, I don't want to necessarily I don't want to prioritize American lives over non-American lives, but but you know, I'm just trying to think if I'm a someone who's who's either Afghan or American who's died in this war, and I and I look at this and I see it being reduced to COVID hours. <laughs> I mean, that's a completely batshit thing for a, again a nominally straight reporter to write. And along the lines of batshit things that Peter Baker has done in your piece today, Adam, you note that the sources who he relies on to to substantiate his opinion that's getting laundered as fact vis-a-vis the news analysis framework that of the New York Times includes people like Megan O'Sullivan, who is identified as, quote, a deputy national security advisor under George W. Bush, who oversaw earlier stages of the Afghan war that that she was. But unmentioned is that, quote, Megan O'Sullivan is currently on the board of directors of Raytheon, the second largest military contractor in the U.S., billing the Pentagon over twenty seven billion dollars a year. Baker also cites General David Petraeus, the counterinsurgency guru who is not only financially enmeshed in the military industrial complex these days, but is also, of course, as you write, quote, he played a huge part in escalating the war. And if anyone has an interest in making the war in Afghanistan appear worth fighting, it's one of its primary architects. What rhetorical sleights of hand are used by reporters like Baker to launder their opinion as fact? Well, what what's fascinating about this piece is that it's extremely <laughs> lazy because there there already exist institutions to further launder weapons contractor money. They're called think CSIS, yeah. CNAS. <laughs> They're think tanks, right? These think tanks are funded almost exclusively by weapons contractors, defense contractors, and sometimes they'll have like in the in the in the case of CSIS, the Center for International and Strategic Studies, who's probably the single most cited, most powerful think tank in Washington. Uh, they're funded by the Saudis. They're funded by United Arab Emirates. They're funded by NATO. There there already exists laundromats. And again, the whole reason the think tank industry exists is because it's – or at least in the, the security state in think tank and we can go into the problems with the other ones. But they exist to give you some faux academic veneer. You take these mercenary PhDs or, or academics and you say, hey, you know, you, you, know, you, you make – you know, buck fifty as a professor at whatever at you know bullshit state. How about you come work for us? You make three hundred thousand dollars a year. You work, you know, maybe you write maybe three things a year. But whenever we need to call on some, you know, someone from the Raytheon School of Oriental Meddling, we will we will call you and you can show up to CNN and talk about why. Again, you stayed up all night poring over the the, the moral ledger and, and and the cost benefit analysis, and you happen to come up with the fact that we just need more war, and we need more weapon systems. And what's what's interesting about Baker and some others is that they they don't even do that. They go straight to the board of directors of Raytheon. I mean, you know, the the, the whole Afghan um, study group, as as um, as Eli Clifton has detailed very well in Responsible Statecraft, and I think in the Daily Beast, the whole Afghan study group was just a bunch of weapons contractor board uh, uh, board members and people who work for weapons contractor funded organizations. I mean, what are these people supposed to say? And I even argue that it's you know you you can look at fiduciary you know sort of Delaware fiduciary duty. Uh, laws. I'm no, I'm no expert in those things, and I, w- I would defer to a corporate lawyer. But like in many ways, like they have a duty of care and a duty of loyalty. And in many ways, boards of directors cannot lobby against the interest of their firm. I mean, I think they quite literally are not able to say we should pull out of this war, even if they wanted to. Sullivan made $940,000 over the past, uh, from 2016 to 2019 on the board of director of Raytheon. What the fuck is she supposed to say? Actually, nah, 
Let's just let's just let's just cut off the gravy train. We're good. We have enough money. Twenty seven billion dollars. Let's let's knock that down to twenty three billion dollars. So on our next our next board meeting, our next our next you know quarterly investor call, I can be like, you know, I I had a I had a moral objection to the war. I mean, of course they're going to say we need more weapons. That's what they're fucking paid to do. But usually they there's one step removed and they go to like a CNAS or CSIS or you know an AEI. Or a heritage, all of which are, are lavished with with weapons and defense contractor money for a reason, not because CSIS is you know super concerned about you know protecting you know Westchester from ISIS invading us or whatever threat they want to talk about. It's the fucking scam. It's the scam of the year. I mean, we're talking. It's a trillion dollar Pentagon budget. It's all gravy train. They're all buddies and they all know each other and they all are on the same boards. They go to the same parties and they all, you know, they serve. They, they rotate out of these civilian. They, they'll do their little stint in the State Department for two, three years. They, you know, maybe they like access to power to some extent, but then they immediately come back out. They go work for, they go work for a lot of these consulting firms. Like, look at the Cohen Group. I mean, you know, David Rank, who's going to be the, who's going to be the, the, the ambassador to China for Biden. It was one of these high, high level officials in the State Department for years. He did this whole sanctimonious quitting uh, because Trump pulled out of the, Paris Accords, and he, and, he, and he did a whole op-ed in the Washington Post saying, I cannot be associated with, with Trump because climate change is real. He goes and works for the Cohen Group, who's one of their biggest clients is the Saudi state oil company. I mean, so Mr. Mr. Fucking Climate Change is going to work. I mean, these mercenary consultancy firms are even worse than the think tanks. So Baker didn't even do that. He went straight to the board of directors. So, I mean, th- this is who these people are. And what I said in my article, I said, you literally can't do national security reporting without weapons contractor funded sources. It's like impossible. Unless you go to uh, maybe like a CEPR, even Center for American Progress, who's, who used to take a lot of golf dictator money, but they don't anymore. But they, you know, they have Walmart, Amazon, big banks, but they don't take weapons contractor money. But, you know, it's hard. It's hard to find sources who are not on, on who aren't, I mean, when we talk about the blob, the blob is, you know, it's an imperfect term. And I, I, don't, I don't like the person, that's, the, the person who coined it is himself in the blob, <laughs> although now he's, he's doing this apologia tour. So we can talk about Is it Rhodes? Ben Rose, yeah. Um, yeah. But like it's – if you went to the dig and citations needed and we're like, do you think the federal government should underwrite podcasts with $10 billion a year? What, 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 why would I say no? Of course I'm going to be like, yeah, this is really essential to national security that we get – that I make $50 million a year as a podcast host. I mean this is, this is what national security reporting is. It is, it is a big fucking laundromat. It's, 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 it's providing faux academic credentials – to push for what is effectively the biggest fucking grift in the world, which is the military industrial complex. But Adam, you you obviously have Peter Baker all wrong. You see, he doesn't have any political opinions. He made it totally oh, right. clear in the New York Times last yeah. year. He wrote, quote, yeah, as reporters, our job is to observe. Well, sorry, to be clear, I, 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 did, I did a poor job with that. That was an interview. You didn't write it. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I saw. I, I, I saw. Yeah. It, 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 he made it clear in, a, in an interview with his own newspaper, The New York Times, quote, as reporters, our job is to observe, not participate. And so to that end, I don't belong to any political party. I don't belong to any non-journalism organization. I don't support any candidate. I don't give money to interest groups. And I don't vote. <laughs> I try hard not to take strong positions on public issues, even in private, much to the frustration of friends and family. For me, it's easier to stay out of the fray if I never make up my mind, even in the privacy of the kitchen or the voting booth, that one candidate is better than another, that one side is right and the other wrong. Who are they trying to convince there, us or, or themselves? I love it. You know, you know, when I read that quote, I thought of, I thought, you know, like in, sometimes in Star Trek, they'll meet those interdimensional beings like the traveler or whoever, <laughs> who's sort of like, 
above time space like they have no and then they look down at mere mortals with their petty squabbles and they're and they just they mm, you're such an interesting species with your opinions and your ideological yeah look if you put a guy in, in if you if you if you cage a guy if i if i cage a guy you know put him in handcuffs and lock him in my closet he's going to have an ideological investment in getting out of that closet that's that, politics you know only the oppressed are or have political opinions right but those who, who are riding the gravy chain and going through the current the current of of the status quo and, and are lavished with you know praise and and cushy jobs and think tank gigs and, and cocktail parties, they don't understand why anyone would care about politics. And of course, that's what makes this whole thing so frustrating. And 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 Eric again details a lot of this. It's very clear they have an opinion. Like, why are we doing this childish thing where we act like you don't? Why not just say like, I'm Peter Baker. I'm heavily I'm heavily invested in U.S. occupation for both ideological and probably financial reasons. Here's why I think we should stay. Like, write an opinion piece. Like, what's wrong with that? Why can't you be a reporter and write opinion pieces? So they do this really goofy, you know, an, uh, um, analysis vertical where they go find five people who agree with them. I mean, it's the whole thing is just a it's 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 theater. It's just an elaborate uh, pantomime. It's not. It, it and, and I just wish we would get rid of the pretext. Eric, who's Who's the theater for? What's the purpose of it? For them, for us, for both, for everyone? Yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. The, the Baker quote goes so extreme that I have trouble believing that, that it's, it's, it's totally an act. Um, <laughs> but it also seems deeply neurotic to me. Like I, I know it's not like singular to him, this like, oh, I'm a journalist, so I don't vote sort of thing. But it's a completely <laughs> so private stupid. act. You know, so it's just to me, it's like, you know, well, I, I only I'm a journalist. I only think about the American flag when I masturbate, you know. That's like, yeah. yeah no purposes um, whatsoever. But yeah, I, and I, I don't know, this maybe connects partly to something Adam said earlier. It seems to me that, yeah, we, we used to have a, a similar thing on um, budgets and deficits, that there's been some progress, I think, in terms of, you know, elite level discourse there where it's not quite like the thing. You're not as comfortable as a um, neutral reporter assuming the morality of um, austerity. But but it does seem to me that, that you know, it, it's especially acute in, in the national security realm, this notion that that almost that, that, that military matters, you know, war and peace uh, are somehow above politics. Well, that's the thing. Like Peter, I, I think Peter Baker genuinely doesn't think that permanent occupation is a political issue. I think he thinks it is, it's like gravity or the, or the, or the, you know, universal constant. It's yeah, just something that is. Exactly. And, and I think that this derives from, you know, in part the, um, as I alluded to, the, the real importance of being able to have sources within the quote unquote deep state, as far as if you're going to break stories on, you know, developments within this highly classified realm of, of information and policymaking you need to be able to, you know, have access within that, within that realm. You know that that's one element of it. But there is this separate thing, and I think it's like a feedback loop, and a dangerous one that we're in right now, where the, um, you know, what we call the mainstream press, which is, in some ways, increasingly an anachronism as right wing media becomes, you know, the number one cable channel in the country is is Fox News, Facebook. You know, if you look at what trends there, is mostly right wing um, infotainment. Um, it like isn't epic times. <laughs> yeah. The mainstream media is not necessarily mainstream anymore, but, but, you know, the, the general, this is largely, especially with the papers, right. Built around this mid 20th century model of really advertising, mass advertising driven, a mass advertising driven business model in which you want to try to reach as broad 
uh, a sort of audience as possible. Um, you want to sell shoes to Republicans and Democrats, etc. And so you sort of establish this kind of, you know, in the Cold War era, a broad sort of Cold War liberal American civic nationalism, maybe as your default posture or whatever, you have kind of this this space that you're occupying. And in, in the present context, you know, what what is it that unifies Democrats and Republicans in the United States? What what holds this whole crumbling polity together? You look at polls and in the military is the most trusted institution, at least most trusted public institution. Um, I think Amazon might be the most uh, trusted uh, institution in general. Um, <laughs> but you have that. And I think that leads, you know, the mainstream press towards both uh, treating whatever the military says as kind of like the neutral, you know, this is the trusted institution, the the generals are saying X, and, and so, you know, whatever, that that can kind of get a status that is um, treated as nonpartisan. And then there also is just this culture of, of troop worship, both from this respect for the institution and this broad national guilt at the fact that so few of us actually serve in these wars. But but these things together lead the, the lead the media to really take a really uncritical posture towards the Pentagon, towards the military, partly from the fact that the public has this pre-existing trust. But then that posture by the media reinforces that trust, even as trust in like all other sort of actually democratically accountable and elected institutions is declining. And it's a really unhealthy uh, sort of uh, loop that we're in. I think it, I think another part of that, another reason that the media is able to achieve the sleight of hand of making military and foreign policy blob perspectives seem so neutral is because so much about imperial American politics is about removing really important issues and setting them above and outside of the spheres of democratic contention, leave elevating them to the realm of technocracy and high expertise. And we've seen that, of course, with foreign policy, as we're discussing here, and at least until recently with monetary monetary policy and with economics more generally. And then, but this time they're up against the president of the United States. So it seems like there's another layer of discourse, which is an, almost a panic of Biden leaning on the democratic legitimacy of this withdrawal to counter the media's reflexive removal of foreign policy from democratic contention. How do you see this this conflict between me, the media and the blob on the one hand and Biden on the other playing out? I don't know. You know, there's another element to this, which is that, you know, that there is also the sense among many in the press that sort of the their Trump era posture of hyper um, adversarialism relative to what they had uh, any sort of relative to their posture towards any previous really U.S. president. There is some self-consciousness about that and some eagerness to reaffirm their sort of neutral posture by, by taking an opportunity to to come swimming at Biden. And it also this subject is perhaps ripe for that, for the fact that, that Biden is largely, in, in his rhetoric in terms of selling this, there is a real resonance of um, Trump, maybe some of the more legitimate aspects of Trump's nationalism in terms of we're expending all of these resources like overseas, we should be spending them at home, sort of the the John Kerry line, I think, from 2004 about we should be building fire stations in, in Boston, not Baghdad. You know, in terms of Biden's speech defending the withdrawal, he was very, you know, adamant, I'm not wasting any more American lives 
this is, you know, uh, the Afghans' war, et cetera. It was on nationalist this, rather than anti-imperialist terms. It's on, yeah. I mean, it, that, that's the only language that, that we're going to have in mainstream politics and until— Yeah, he, he's the CEO of the empire. He's not going <laughs> to criticize. Yeah. You know, Goldman, <laughs> Goldman Sachs is not going to promote Marxism. Right, but yeah. it is still nonetheless reflecting. It is Biden kind of echoing and in that way consolidating. I, I, I think I agree with the, the question, a, a populist, nationalist sort of, you know, turn in the national mood against uh, military adventurism— and, you know, as we've seen from previous sort of realignments, it's it's when the other party takes power in the policy, or at least the, the attitude. Uh, we obviously didn't see much policy change, actually, substantively in the Trump era uh, on imperialism whatsoever, obviously. But uh, but nonetheless, there is this ratification, and you've seen it a little bit on trade as well, where, where, where Biden has maintained some of Trump's tariffs uh, questionably in certain circumstances. And regrettably, uh, Biden is also— on immigration. Uh, kept some of Trump's immigration um, orders uh, on the books for now, particularly the uh, pandemic era one. Um, and all the sanctions, too. But notably, even with Biden keeping so much of Trump era immigration restrictions in place, basically denying asylum seekers the right to enter the country at the border, one of the most outrageous moves taken by Trump using COVID as a pretext, it's only with the withdrawal of Afghanistan that you see in the newspaper so many so many people calling Biden Trump-like. Now we hear it. Yes. No, that, 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 is, that is exactly right. It is only, you're only Trump-like when it's something that, that is not part of the routine maintenance of empire, like, like uh, brutalizing immigrants or sanctioning and killing tens of thousands of people in Venezuela. It's when you veer off the script that then, then, it's, then it's outrage o'clock. But you know, one of the things I think it's important to acknowledge here because people are trying to think, well, what's the sort of motivation is that Biden and his people can look at polls and they just see how they see how unpopular these wars are. I mean, various polls, 70, 80 percent of people say, I want to leave. And there's a and so when they get mad, they say, oh, well, he's doing it for politics. <laughs> and what they mean when they say he's doing it for politics, they mean that he's doing something that the people want him and voted voted for him to do. He vote, you know, again, I want to make sure this is not like a, a Biden knob job hour. <laughs> like, obviously, we all have plenty of criticisms of Biden. But for the purposes of this discussion, like it's it is a political calculation. Um, because it is unpopular. Thank God for the people of, of Afghanistan. You know, it, it sucks that our wars have to be contingent upon um, uh, domestic approval. But on a, on a fundamental level, it's not you're not an empire such that it is, is is not is is not allowed to be within the view of politics. It wasn't you know it wasn't in 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 the UK for uh, in, in, the, in the British Empire for um, you know over a century. There was no real debate about whether or not you know you were going to be uh you know have viceroys in in, in it's India the premise of the de- it's the granted. premise of debate you know in in in, in israel you're not going to have someone elected you know who's, who's who's meaningfully going to counter apartheid it's just the you know you're not going to have anyone elected in the united states who's going to meaningfully question uh you know support you know the land back movement of indigenous tribes you're not going to have anti-imperialist by definition you know it's very difficult to get them any into any proximate quarter uh, quarters of power and um that's why when when someone just kind of bucks it around the margins or or, or pushes back around the margins because they can look at polls and see how unpopular it is and one dimension too that you can you can't you have to appreciate is that how unpopular this war and the wars have been with the actual rank and file in the military i mean the biggest can the candidates who raised the most money in 20, you know, 2008, 2012, uh, 2016, 2020 have been the most nominally anti-war. And I stress nominally because there's debate about whether, you know, Ron Paul, Bernie Sanders, 
Donald Trump, uh, Ron Paul won, won, you know, effectively as an anti-war candidate. And they go there and they see the wars. Again, I, I'm not saying that we need to center the, Amer- the uh, Americans as the moral constituent, but it does show you that even in the rank and file, and my guess is even within some of the military brass, they don't, they see these wars as just watching the fucking meat grinder and don't see any moral utility to it. And it doesn't, it's, it sort of ceased having value to the empire aside from, you know, keeping natural, you know, uh, important natural resources out of the hands of adversaries, Iran and in Russia and China, which is which is important. I mean, I don't want to downplay that, but but the the utility just wasn't there, and they were extremely unpopular, uh, both with Americans and American um, quote unquote the you know the troops that were that that Jake Tapper supposedly loves and wants to wrap a flag around at all times, um, and I think that that played into the equation and that kind of rank and file populist um, uh, constituency is viewed not only viewed as irrelevant but viewed as a hostile actor to the to the national security elite both in think tanks and, and media Eric you know I, I think that what and what the impact of all this will be in terms of like uh, voting patterns in November 2022 is very unclear but the media has thus far established uh, its capacity to punish presidents who offend the, the, the national security state and you know I think that's important to to note in this moment we'll, we'll see how long it lasts but even with the actual substantive question here of withdrawal even with Biden having the popular position on that matter we're seeing uh, in in one poll released today I think from Ipsos uh, support for how Biden is handling Afghanistan went from something like 59% in July to 38% now. Well, yeah, those, those those polls are very interesting how they yeah, phrase the question. They're like if Biden if Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan allows al-Qaeda to regroup, unite with ISIS and take over America, do you do you think that was a good <laughs> and move? Then literally murder your <laughs> right. wife. Do you think that was a good move? I mean, what they what what they've done in some of these which I would consider push polls, the Guardian had one or the Guardian Observer rather. Let's say, how do you, how do you, how do you, do, uh, do you support Biden's withdrawal? And it's phrased in a way, again, you have this process criticism of the actual sort of handling the competence question, right? It's it's a it's fundamentally a process criticism. It's not a fundamental criticism, and and then you then when you ask people in the poll era, because you know, like, do you support the war withdrawal in the abstract? It's you know, it goes up to sixty five, seventy percent. Right. You know, I think that the public support for withdrawal has been has proven fairly robust against, as we've suggested, really significant um, uh, pushback from the media. A- at the same time, we are seeing like even just overall now. Again, the significance of these poll movements uh, actually for electoral outcomes, whether it is actually rational or correct for democratic politicians uh, to act in response to them, we are seeing just in you know non-push polls, just Biden's approval going down amid yes. whatever the actual substantive matter people are seeing every day. I mean, the amount of like, I don't know what the value to the RNC, if you calculated the value of this earned media would be, but it would be something astronomical. I mean, you're seeing anti- Biden uh, ads, like as sort of all day CNN content. I think, uh, you know, this is, uh, as Adam suggested, this, you know, potentially is trying to set uh, a message for future presidents about the the hazards of ending imperial engagements or cutting off the gravy train to Arlington, Virginia's suburbs. But I think it's also about disciplining Biden. And I think, you know, regrettably, uh, you know, my both positive and negative with Biden is that I see him as not terribly ideological, pretty uh, amenable to whatever he sees as politically expedient, you know, within certain bounds. But we saw, you know, the immigration thing that we were just talking about, 
when Biden first came into office, he had a flurry of executive orders, largely symbolic, but, you know, undoing Trump era uh, immigration things. Then there's an uptick in, in uh, asylum seekers at the border. Uh, right wing media and a little bit of the mainstream media starts hitting him on it. And he uh, suddenly doesn't want to lift the refugee cap anymore. And there has to be this little struggle just to get him to 68,000 on the refugee cap. And so, you know, already we saw today with the drone strike, a pretty hazardous uh, drone strike for retribution that ended up killing a lot of civilians. I think we're already seeing the the media disciplining Biden in a way where not just in Afghanistan, but potentially in, in some other theater of conflict, he is now going to feel like he needs to, uh, you know, reassert himself. Uh, and, and so and, re- and reassert America. Yeah, I, I think that the, the media, the media is threatened by certain or rather the national security aligned media, the blob. Um, is threatened by the democratic currents that are, are pushing against it. At the same time, it is pushing back against those democratic currents um, in a way that is, is is very concerning. We shouldn't underestimate it. Given the last four years, it's really remarkable. Republicans benefiting as CNN and company beat up on Biden. It's like Jeff Zucker and Donald Trump reunited at last. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, you could do a whole episode on the on the, the sort of faux anti-imperialist right and yes. how they've handled this. The, the, the J.D. Vance, the Josh Hawley, the Tucker Carlson, because I'm actually going to probably write something on that because it really does show how useless those kinds of supposed alliances are. Now, I understand legislative context of Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee when they get together to do a Yemen resolution. I have no problem with that. But the reason why you can't put too much credence on these sort of the, the kind of Tucker vectors because they have completely, again, with, with supposed allies like this, I mean, we're talking all Josh Hawley, you know, Marines die, Biden failed, but they're trying to Benghazi this. And because they're, they have no moral consistency or intellectual honesty at all, they're now trying to do the process criticism, which is ironic because that's the same criticism that they're supposed you know, the neo, neoconservatives they supposedly hate make, which is that like um, Biden's incompetent. This is, this is done badly. And they're never, they never specify or are never clear a, how they would have done it. Again, I, no one, no one, the reason why none of the people who I think do the process criticism, I, I think Matt Iglesias said something to the effect of like, and again, weird bedfellows, uh, said something to the effect of like, the process criticism is bullshit, just ignore it. I'm not, I wouldn't go that far. I think there are probably some people who do it in good faith. But the reason why you know most of the people are not in good faith is because you'll say, okay, well, how, how should he have done it differently? And no one has ever really yet to give me an answer. And I've asked a lot of people this question, which is like, okay, so like the Josh Hawley crowd, the kind of America first crowd, the, well, let's be frank, the fucking Nazis, they support it. Uh, they, they support it in theory, but they need to go after Biden for being incompetent because ultimately they're just partisan hacks and they can't, they can't like give credit where it's due. They can't really form any kind of meaningful coalition. And, and, I, and I think that that whole vector has been very illuminating because it just shows you that at the end of the day, there's the, the intellectual dishonesty will come back and bite you in the ass because now they're the biggest critics of Biden when, he, when he's desperate for any kind of allies. And that you can always kind of fall back on this process criticism because it's a counterfactual and it can never be disproven. You know, what, is it, what does it mean to like do it well? I, I don't, I mean, I'm genuinely curious. I, you know, uh, again, uh, Glenn Kessler, the, the, the fact-checking guy at the Washington Post was like, we need to hold Biden to account because he, he went up to the podium on July 8th and said this was not going to be Saigon. Pinocchio. And that, and that sounds, you know, superficially, that sounds so like, oh, that's like a reasonable thing to object to. But then you think about it and you're like, and this is where I'm maybe getting into like pure Biden standing and please stop me and don't hold this against me. But like, what was he supposed to do? Go up to the podium on on July 8th and say, oh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a paper tiger government. It's yeah, this could be a fucking like disaster, folks. Buckle your, buckle, uh, buckle your seatbelts. That, that, <laughs> that would have just that would have been a vote of no confidence and expedited the Taliban takeover yeah. to July 8th. 
I mean, there are like times in which we have to be big boys and live in a big boy world and understand that like there's a mass psychology going on here. And even if you don't think it's an adequate excuse, and I think there's an argument that maybe it's not, like you can't just say, well, you know, we need daddy president to lie to us. I think there are, that obviously can become a very slippery slope. Or, or at the very least, you have to engage it, right? You have to sort of say why it's not true. And no one does that. No one, no one sort of provides what they would have done, like A to B to C to D, to like prevent that. Because ultimately, again, the fundamental problem is they militarily lost. And they militarily lost years ago. They've just been saving face. And they want losing to look like winning. And thousands of people have died so they can save face and continue the fucking gravy train. And so that's where I'm, a, maybe I, I'm not, again, I'm not quite as dismissive as like an Iglesias on, on the process criticisms, because I, I think maybe somewhere out there, there's one that's like worth, worth engaging. But so far, it's just, it's like, they cannot give the, these, these supposed America first uh, anti-war types cannot give fucking credit where it's due, because that then they would have to be not partisan hacks. And ultimately, again, at the ultimate end of the day, Tucker, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, all these people, they're just fucking partisan hacks. I mean, that's it. Everything else is just, you know, it's like Josh Hawley support, supposedly Mr. Anti-Imperialist was voted for the fucking military, you know, uh, uh, 700 and some odd billion dollar military budget. He does it every year. And this is Mr. Anti-Empire. And you know what his major criticism of the defense bill was and what, what held it up? It was uh, trans, trans and sexual harassment uh, uh, amendments, and also the the renaming the renaming the the military bases after Confederate generals. That was his great anti-imperialist uh, intervention. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to the Dig as well. You should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of the Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean. Palestine, A Socialist Introduction systematically tackles a number of important aspects of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, contextualizing it in an increasingly polarized world and offering a socialist perspective on how full liberation can be won. Through an internationalist, anti-imperialist lens, this book explores the links between the struggle for freedom in the United States and that in Palestine and beyond. It examines both the historical and contemporary trajectory of the Palestinian solidarity movement in order to glean lessons for today's organizers, and compellingly lays out the argument that, in order to achieve justice in Palestine, the movement has to take up the question of socialism regionally and internationally. Palestine, a socialist introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean. Out now from Haymarket Books. Eric, and you wrote about this as well, the way that the biggest process criticisms of Biden's withdrawal don't actually explore the counterfactual situations in any depth, because if they did so, it would be clear that either saying, oh, wow, yeah, the Afghan government could fall pretty damn quickly. There's nothing. It's a Potemkin village or starting to evacuate Afghans in mass early, both could have precipitated the even faster and sooner fall of the Afghan government and left the United States military in the exact same position it ended up, conducting a mass evacuation at the Kabul airport, surrounded by an Afghanistan governed by the Taliban. Well, so there are a couple things to say. One one is that, you know, obviously, I think um, we would all 
co-signed that, you know, the Biden administration could have, uh, in anticipation of the fact that it was withdrawing all uh, troops from Afghanistan by August 31st, uh, and in uh, light of, you know, some intelligence reports that had gotten released, I think, in, in, in June or July, suggesting that that the rapid fall of the Afghan government was at least a significant possibility that it could have done more to prepare, you know, for refugee admissions and uh, expediting the the backlog for uh, special immigrant visas. And the U.S. should let a million Afghans in if they want to come. Right. We fucking um, occupied their country for two decades. No. <laughs> so, so you know, we, we, we can think yeah, of counterfactuals the, that would be floor, right? preferable from our perspective. You know, at, at, at the same time, to me, the, the counterfactual that would most... Well, one irony is that I think a lot of um, people who fundamentally, and maybe they would even admit it, but they weren't focusing on this rhetorically, support or oppose the withdrawal just full stop, but were focused on, you know, okay, let's stipulate the withdrawal. We've lost that argument. I'm going to make this uh, case against the process of this particular withdrawal. A lot of their avowed concerns, to me, the way that I could see addressing them is solely through uh, getting ahead of this in terms of before the Taliban has uh, recognized its own strength, you know, brokering a total surrender, right? I mean, you know, which these people, of course, would have opposed. I mean, is saying, and I don't think it's possible because fundamentally, I don't think you would get the Afghan government on board with that. But if you had said, yeah, I've I've heard that one too. I've heard that one too, and I think that's 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 intellectually honest. It should have been a formalized surrender um, instead of this weird, you know, mass psychology event, this prisoner's dilemma where everyone was acting as if they were doing something else they weren't really doing. And, you know, I think, I think from a humanitarian perspective, again, I think Afghan activists have been saying and have said that like the, the immigration caps, the, the, the high application fees, the, the bottleneck that Biden could have done a better job on that. Obviously the military could have done a much better job on that. The problem is that even in, in any scenario, they were still going to do a bad job on that because guess what? They don't really care about fucking Afghans. <laughs> they don't really care about women's rights. So that's why that's where the motive factor comes in or the intent factor comes in. And like, there's, there's not going to, so that, that, that is a scenario where, yes, of course, that is one thing that could have been good at, but that is not what Jake Tapper, Eli Lake, and all, all these sort of, all, all the meltdown crowd is talking about. They're not really concerned with the humanitarian failures. That is kind of a, that, again, that's, that's sort of more, that's moral window dressing for what is the real aim, which is to just stay there forever. Within just the last 24 hours, I think, with this Washington Post TikTok sort of report of the fall of Kabul, a new counterfactual that is, um, you know, again, everything that we were discussing was press coverage before this particular revelation, which I don't think actually changes anything substantially, although I haven't had the time to contemplate it very much. But but that there was this decision, right, where uh, the Afghan president had had fled the country, the Taliban context, the United States saying, uh, look, we've got two choices here, like either the U.S., army has to establish, uh, enforce security throughout the city of Kabul or, or the, we, the Taliban will. And, uh, Biden said, we're, we're, we want the airport. We don't want anything else. Uh, we want to secure the airport and, and focus on our evacuation. We don't want to police a city of 5 million people with 3000 us troops who would presumably be sitting ducks for all kinds of IED attacks. So I, I think that that's a pretty defensible uh, position that the administration took at the same time. I believe that's the counterfactual that you're going to hear more and more about in the coming weeks, because there was a concrete decision there where, at least as reported by the Post, the Taliban offered to leave the U.S. Kabul for a period 
Um, and we said no. So yeah, I mean, look at the sensationalist framing about everything that they've done with the U.S. engaging the Taliban. You know, U.S. gave names. Well, of course they have to give names. They have to tell people who to let through. I mean, they they're framing everything in the, the most sinister light. I mean, it's it, it's 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 amazing yeah. to watch. It's like everything they do. Again, I this is weird. I'm like defending the White House. It's not really my mo usually. <laughs> but you see what happens when they do these. It's like when that that those two weeks I was defending Trump at the North Korea summit. It was like everyone's like, "Well, do you like Trump?" It's like, no. This is this is such obvious bad faith bullshit. Like, and 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 they're just they're they're putting everything in the most sinister kind of neoconservative, and they they keep doing this. Like, you know, Richard Engel. You know, we have to rely on Taliban for security. Well, great honor. It's just, it's appealing to fucking national narcissism. That's all it's doing. It's not, it has no interest in what the pragmatic realities of the situation are. It's just. And it's precisely the response of people like Richard Engel that makes a, the actual counterfactual, like a negotiated surrender with the Taliban. Oh, that would never Impossible. Oh, that would have been. Because look, we can't even negotiate, like coordinate security with them. And with- it's, and, and then you're seeing this emerging narrative and the the real, again, aside from the, the, the moral hazard that's now existing where no one's, where they're sending a message to presidents, which is, you're not allowed to do this. Like they, this guy's got dementia. You know, he did it once. Don't do it again. Is that there's that they're going to have this Vietnam syndrome. You know, people love to talk about Vietnam syndrome. Of course, the real Vietnam syndrome wasn't this idea that what we weren't imperial enough. The, 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 it was this idea that we had to sort of prove ourselves again. And these kind of national neurosis, and you saw this after the Iran Contra or the Iran hostage situation, these national neuroses that, again, are not real. They're manufactured by the security state. They have real negative implications. I mean, that's what, it's largely what the, the moral framework for fucking invading Granada was. Um, it was we had to sort of reassert our, our imperial ego. And this is something and all Panama that, too. And Panama as well. Exactly. Now they're saying, they're saying Biden's got to give us something now. We need, we need to go around and kick someone's ass somewhere. Um, really, it's for the, it's for how, it's more, more more gravy train, but also it is. There's this narcissism that has to be satiated. That Jake Tapper needs to see some some shit blow up, or he doesn't fucking he's not able to get it up, or whatever his reasons are. And so, like, that's the I think that's a fear moving forward in the next few years. If if not Biden, whoever whoever comes next. I want to turn to media coverage of the Taliban, which seems less like journalism and more like a sort of demonology. Is the media even? really bothering to evaluate the Taliban's pledge to create an inclusive government and not engage in reprisals? Who who knows what they'll do? But the fact is that they do seem to be operating with some restraint. They are negotiating with Hamid Karzai, which they certainly don't have to do. They won the war after all. And they're obviously, of course, reasons not to trust the Taliban. Obviously, it's a reactionary organization with a murderous, very repressive track record, but there's also very good reasons not to trust any armed organization or state in the world, very much including the United States, which played, of course, an enormous role in creating the Taliban in the first place. How do you see the media coverage of the Taliban and what would fair coverage look like? Because there's a real risk, as Ferris Stockman wrote in a surprisingly good New York Times editorial recently, a big risk in the blob and media sort of rooting for the Taliban and setting the Taliban up to fail. That would not be a good outcome. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I can't pretend to to be a real expert on, on the Taliban. At the same time, I do think that it is noteworthy that, that the question of what this means, at least in, in my um, consumption of media around this, is, is not even just engaged in a very serious way. There was a piece by... Graham Wood of the Atlantic, uh, you know, taking the negative 
uh, on, you know, whether there's going to be any meaningful um, difference between the Taliban that, that is set to rule now and the one that, um, you know, was deposed 20 years ago. And he makes some interesting points about, you know, the internal uh, machinations within that organization and the, the characters in play. But I think that it, it, I believe, you know, it made real no engagement with just changes in the structural conditions facing any regime that wishes to rule Afghanistan um, after 20 years uh, of mass exposure to, you know, in, in the urban areas, mass exposure to sort of Western influence uh, and, and just broader, just general global culture um, to a non-Islamist uh, sort of way of life. You have a population, I believe, that over 50 percent, I think, is like 18 and under who would have grown up um, within, again, certain pockets of the country, but powerful pockets, you know, with uh, just a very different sort of orientation towards the world. And beyond those just attitudinal changes in terms of the Afghan public, you have uh, more fundamentally a an economy that has been completely uh, reorganized around the presumption of massive foreign aid. The trade uh, deficit that Afghanistan has amassed as a result of uh, the foreign dollars coming in. And yes, the lion's share went to U.S. weapons contractors and uh, Afghan elites, but some did trickle down below that uh, sphere. And you have an economy that is just not very self-sufficient. It's really reorganized around assuming that it will have the dollars it needs um, to fund, you know, a massive trade deficit. And what we've done already is uh, one freeze uh, the reserves of the Afghan government that that it holds at the Federal Reserve in New York, which is I think about nine billion dollars, which could cover its uh, you know uh, foreign liabilities and um, feed its its trade deficit for a year. We we right now we're sucking out those dollars. Uh, we're, we're holding them hostage uh, to uh, I'm not sure exactly what the demands are at this point. But the bottom line is you have a Taliban that they want to rule. Uh, they want power in addition to whatever ideological convictions or mission they may have. And to hold state power, you know, in Afghanistan is, is no easy task to begin with. Under these current conditions, there are some very strong external pressures towards uh, some measure of reform, at least in the places, whatever, th- there is a, a countervailing elite of some kind. Um, and this reformist impulse you know, whether they're going to, that general amnesty they did for former um, members of the government, some of that might be entirely cynical, some of that might be public relations messaging, but some of it is likely, you know, geared around the fact that they need technocrats, they need somebody to run the central bank, uh, you know, and, and, and all of the the human capital that is uh, on offer, you know, in, in Kabul, a lot of it is going to be people who served in the last government. And so I think just, just asking these questions of, you know, what... Uh, what pressures does this new regime face? What incentives does it have? And does that lend credibility or not to some of the claims that it's making? You know, these are questions that I think need to be explored and that I don't really see being explored uh, or, or the media evincing any curiosity about. Um, one, yeah, I think the, the play in terms of demagoguing the scary Muslims, because a lot of these pundits know very well that most people don't know the difference between the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. I mean, most you look at polling. Most people think ISIS is is with is aligned with Iran, and if you watch ten minutes of Sean Hannity, you would think that too. I think the play is to kind of speak in this very generalized, what I sort of call like kinetic thought, uh, sort of kinetic racism, where you sort of just 
bleh, sort of feels, and you see a lot of this, you know, harbor for, you know, it's going to, they're going to harbor terrorists, ISIS are going to attack us. And they kind of know, most people don't know the difference. So as far as the, the, the sort of demagoguery around the next regime, I think it's very much about conflating groups that Taliban actively fights against with the Taliban, knowing full well that most people aren't going to really make that distinction, right? Because again, I, I think that your average media consumer isn't sitting there parsing the, you know, reading reading the Atlantic and, and parsing the nuances of the internal struggle between the Taliban. The the real play here in terms of Benghazi Biden with a fucking blunt instrument is to make sure people don't know the difference. Um, I'm actually probably more on the skeptical end as far as the Taliban's alleged reforms. Um, I, I would, I would, I mean, just pure, you know, sober analysis, I would say that that's, I'm very skeptical of that. I don't think that's actually going to come to pass. Um, I do think that much of it's going to have, how, how much they're going to be demonized is going to be very much to do with how they geopolitically align themselves moving forward. You know, if they become more aligned with Russia or China, we'll, we'll hear all the horror stories. If they, be, if they somehow work out a deal where they're maybe uh, more on the fence or, 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 or kind of play all sides, we won't hear those stories. But the basic foundation, I, 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 you know, I'm skeptical about, but I, but I will say that I think the play is going to be this conflation. And you see this already. I mean, you, I, various examples seen in, you know, McMaster, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, all these sort of interchangeable white generals who all kind of look like the white generals you have on like 24 and, and TV shows. Um, they go on there and they and they make sure very very clearly that their way the way they speak does not distinguish and and I think that's going to be the play because you have to keep this war on terror narrative this kind of there I mean look what Tulsi Gabbard said they, they you know those that that the ISIS in Afghanistan wants to convert everybody that that's their kind of mo makes no mention of the Taliban that's not that that. Josh Hawley's doing the same thing, right? ISIS, Al Qaeda, you know, uh, home recruiting. Uh, Jay Johnson went on MSNBC and did, you know, did the whole like ISIS and Al Qaeda are just going to go there and set up camps. And it's almost like the Taliban doesn't exist. It's almost like we didn't fight a war against the Taliban. We fought a war against this kind of abstract ideology because once, because as long as that is the narrative, then who's to, who's to say who's to say that that's not a worthy reason to stay there forever or to have you know there was that one reporter whose name I never figured out who had a meltdown over us not having a military base in Tajikistan I've I've never I've never seen someone have such an emotional investment in a military base in Tajikistan. It's almost like he, he like he was talking about it like you insulted his fucking mother. He was like what do you mean? What do you mean we're not going to have a military base in Tajikistan? Don't we need to put pressure on Iran? Uh, and you know Jake Sullivan, who's you know the blobbiest blob ever. Westec, you know, founded West uh, West Exec, which is a fucking defense contractor uh, influence peddling operation. Was just like, I don't know, man. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. You know, we've been in meetings. He doesn't seem to give a shit about Tajikistan. I think he thinks it's one of those fake, you know, fake Marx Brothers countries. I, what do you want from me? <laughs> and they're just so invested in this in this constant hostile posture that they can't even imagine that there's that there's that military, quote unquote, engagement can, can actually be detrimental to these people's lives. Whatever happens down the road with the Taliban right now, though, we can contrast the media's treatment of the presumption that the Taliban will engage in reprisals, mass reprisals, despite the fact that they haven't yet, with the actual reprisals committed by U.S. allies in Afghanistan after and during slash after the U.S. invasion, a key case in point being warlord General Abdul Rashid Dostum, whose forces murdered hundreds, maybe thousands of Taliban who had surrendered in late November 2001. If you're listening right now and are like, oh, like, have I ever heard of that? I mean, maybe you have it um, because the U.S. worked hard for years to obstruct any sort of inquiry into that mass massacre because Dostum was on the CIA payroll and his forces were key to the U.S. 
invasion. And so this notion that Taliban are uniquely evil, I mean, obviously they're fucked up. They're religious reactionaries who have a horrible track record. But the idea that they're so great compared to U.S. allies in Afghanistan, which is at least the implicit message of so much coverage is well yeah it's obviously full of shit i mean uh, <laughs> uh, sarah's working on a piece right now going over all the all the people funded by saudi arabia who are who are very concerned about w- women's rights i mean it's 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 like a bit of a slam dunk piece because it's it, the hypocrisy is so transparent uh the taliban themselves have said that by the way they say well i don't understand you you, you support the saudi regime they're you know they're they're not any better than us and you're like whoa okay you just got what about it mister i want to talk about the right wing media. What I'm seeing happening is that both the mainstream and right-wing media are aligned in framing the withdrawal as chaotic, botched, whatever. But then the right-wing media, and I've been watching Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson in particular, they've been using that framing as a jumping off point to argue that the U.S. is selling out the country by prioritizing the evacuation of Afghans over Americans. And then... Oh, that, well, yeah, they're not racist enough. That's a line I forgot. Sorry. You're right. And while we're talking about details and terms that are being hidden from the American people... The true scope of the refugee situation must be revealed. Importing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Afghans to the United States is bound to pose major challenges with huge financial, cultural, and security costs. Of course, Biden wants you to believe that he's got this thing, this whole vetting thing, totally under control. A background check with those great Afghan files. I think it's the same thing we saw after 9-11 and throughout the war on terror, which is the mainstream media legitimating the sort of liberal imperial worldview that in turn lays the groundwork for right-wing nativist and nationalist reaction. Wait a second, son. We can debate how many Afghan refugees we admit, but making this a matter of racism? Pashtuns are whiter than you are. They have beards, but there's nothing racist about having concerns about Afghans or anybody else moving here. It has nothing to do with race. So knock it off. But listen to what he's saying. Foreigners are more impressive than you are. They're more entrepreneurial. You learned that at a Coke seminar. And if you don't agree with that, said Adam Kinzinger, if you thought the point of America was to serve the people who live here, the Americans, you are, and we're quoting, evil. That's his position. You're evil. So now you know why Adam Kinzinger isn't bothered at all by what the Biden administration is doing now at the southern border, which is opening it. He's not bothered because he agrees with the result. Fewer native-born whiners, those people can go die of obesity and fentanyl ODs, more grateful foreigners to whom, (laughs) who feel indebted to us, people we can claim to have rescued. How do you two see the the, the relationship between the MSM and right wing? It's all they have because they, they're supposedly America first. Biden does this thing that supposedly they are supporting theory. They can't support it. So all they can do is say he didn't do it racist enough. That's all they have. That's all they have. You know, I, I'm very resistant to kind of a just world sort of theory of politics in many respects in terms of, um, you know, there would be support for really uh, or organic support for, for uh, a sort of cosmopolitan kind of orientation towards the world in a, in a more expansive sort of sense of, of obligation beyond like the the level of the nation state, uh, you know, if it weren't for the fact that, that liberal hawks had associated uh, humanitarianism with war. Um, at the same time, I do think you're correct in terms of that it draws strength from that. Like, it is a real tragic thing that, that you know, within the mainstream media, the um, the loudest sort of, uh, you know, to the extent that, that our, our media 
tries to compel a U.S. audience to think more broadly about the role of its country in the world and about their obligations to people overseas, that this happens, you know, almost exclusively in contexts where uh, we're talking about uh, fulfilling that obligation by agreeing to have predominantly people who are uh, disproportionately working class and non-white and don't have other good employment opportunities to go overseas and die and kill a lot of people to advance some largely pretextual um, humanitarian goal. I do think that is a gift to the uh, na- a nationalist right that, that wants to broaden its support um, and, and demonize and out of touch cosmopolitan elite. And I do think that these two forces, or that there is a relationship between the forces in, in that respect. And Tucker has also made the argument that U.S. empire failed in Afghanistan because U.S. empire was too woke. And the Taliban correctly oh, yeah. stood up to yeah. the woke yeah. mob. As one USAID official conceded in a classified report, quote, focusing on gender made things more unstable because it caused revolts. It caused revolts. But officials kept doing it. They kept pushing radical gender politics anyway because they could because they were in charge of these Stone Age people they were going to educate. This is the face of the late American empire, gender studies seminars at gunpoint. This is not like other empires. Unlike other empires, ours does not operate for our benefit. America toppled Saddam but took no oil. Remember that? Instead, the entire point of our imperial project is to give meaning to the empty lives of the neoliberal bureaucrats who administer it and then enrich the contractors who work for them, who are enriched, you'll be happy to know. <laughs> yeah, they were they were asking pronouns, I think, when they were when they were kicking in doors and shooting people. Yeah. Yeah, no, Tucker was, he like got one foot into the, the Dinesh D'Souza post 9-11 sort of, uh, I don't know if you remember, like he, D'Souza had a big thing about social conservatives in the U.S. and, and those in the Islamic world are actually like, need to make common cause. Um, and he backed away from that pretty quickly. But yeah, Tucker had uh, that a... Was the, that, that was the Ronald Reagan approach in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah. It was, uh, it was, the, it was, it was, it was the ultimate, uh, it was, it was the Avengers. They all got together and decided to kick it to those commies. Adam, you've touched on this a few times, but many of us on the left, myself included, we found ourselves in the unusual position of defending Biden, in particular in this case, of course, against the media and the blob. And Eric, your article was tweeted by Donna Brazil and Dan oh, Pfeiffer. No. Your, tweet, your tweet promoting the article was liked by Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain. Oh, no. Do you think this unexpected polarization around Afghanistan with the left in Biden's corner and Biden's team seemingly, at least in the case of your article, Eric, looking to the left for support, could it shape the trajectory of politics in unexpected ways in the coming year, this moment, in ways we don't can't quite see right now? I, I would say that I would say that, look, if this was Bernie Sanders ending this war, none of these people would give a fuck. <laughs> they would be jumping on the mm-hmm. pile bandwagon. There is there's a lot of overlap with national security, state uh, blobbery and the Biden circle. But they're not they're They're also distinct in many ways. And this has exposed that um, that the White House does have media allies who supersede the I mean, look, if I'm when I'm sitting there and I'm when I first see myself nodding to, to Jennifer Rubin tweets, I almost had to like check myself in and be like, wait a second. Am I a liberal interventionist? I think I'm going to change ideologies here. You have partisan hacks who will die on the hill no matter what Biden does. And to the extent to which we, I think we've aligned with them, or at least I've aligned with them this week, uh, that's politics. You know, I mean, you know, critical support for Comrade Biden. Um, 
it's probably not going to last very long. But I, 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 the, I would say, and I talked to Sarah Lazar about this a lot, a lot. Like, it is important that the quote unquote left defend Biden in this moment, actually, because the whole point is to send a message, and there needs to be some support from all quarters. Again, it's not going to ultimately what one person does is not going to really matter. But there needs to be support for presidents who do these things, again, albeit problematically, albeit with refugee caps, albeit with drone bombs that kill children. There's, you know, there's all these other bad things Biden has done in the context of this, right? But if we don't show that, like, there's a popular support for, for, DS, for demilitarization, even in this very minor context, then it's just, it's just fucking fair game for the vultures to just eat off the flesh of the White House. And, like, they're going to disincentivize anyone else to do it, even if the fucking po- if polls at 99%. It's more popular than fucking Jesus and Tom Hanks rolled into one. It doesn't matter. If the fucking media piles on you and lowers your, you know, approval rating by 10 points, it basically means that – because, again, I think that's the issue here. I really think it's not even about Afghanistan. It's about U.S. military presence – in uh, Djibouti and in UAE and Syria and Iraq and are fighting against Hezbollah and the support for Israel with respect to Palestine. There's a general fear about disengagement from the Middle East. When you, you can't, when one little thing happens, it sets a precedent and it, it, it needs to make clear that, that this is not acceptable and that there, there will be the, that melt, there'll be meltdown city. I mean, again, remember when Trump would randomly say, I'm going to pull out of Syria, which he never actually did, by the way. He just said he would do it. And there was a fucking meltdown every time he did it. And I think many people thought Biden was doing something similar. He kind of said this generic popular thing. I'm going to end the forever wars. I'm going to leave Afghanistan. And nobody believed him. And then I didn't fucking believe him. And then he did it. (laughs) Again, not perfect. Still the CIA drones. I'm not saying it's perfect. But he did it to the extent to which it caused a fucking brain aneurysm in every national security reporter on CNN and NBC. And like, I, you know, I, I think that it is odd common cause. You're right. But but that happens in politics. That's politics. I mean, you know, that is politics. That happens. You know, there's a lot of things that Biden are going to do that, that you're going to say, yeah, I got to support that. You know, I mean, whether it's a, let's say some of these, these, these kind of large stimulus packages or whatever it is, you say, or, you know, even the PRO Act, if that ever comes to pass, like that's just what it's going to have to be. As bad, as bad for my brand as it may be. You know, I mean, I think that there's the, the, the relationship between the left and, and the Biden administration is is at least more complicated, I would say, than than the relationship with the Obama administration ultimately proved to be because there is real, real left wing influence on, on the White House uh, in terms of uh, the Biden, you know, what we're seeing, you know, as kind of a, I'm not sure if litmus test is the right word, but but a, a acid test, a, a a, a test of, of sort of the left strength within the Democratic Party and in American politics uh, at the national level writ large. And we're seeing very clearly what the limitations of progressive power are, but but also what um, what inroads have been made. You know, I think a lot of it reflects sort of developments on at the elite discourse level on, on sort of the influence of, of social media, where you can have something like econ Twitter, um, this sort of groups of economists who are conventionally credentialed uh, in most respects, but not people who have um, mastered the art of working their way up inside these sort of stodgy conservative institutions of policymaking power, have these platforms to air uh, new ideas, to share empirical research that shows, oh, that the minimum wage doesn't have a disemployment effect, or actually uh, we're seeing that, um, in fact, the inadequate stimulus of the uh, Obama years really had a durable impact on the long-term productive capacity of the U.S. economy and likely impacted the Democratic Party 
adversely um, in elections. There are a lot of these arguments that progressives have won on issues that do not threaten anything fundamental that are actually consistent with, you know, Biden's infamous sort of promise to his wealthy donors that, you know, nothing fundamental will change, uh, which I think sometimes gets misrepresented in terms of he was saying that we can do this slate of center-left reforms, redistributive reforms, and your living standards as, you know, multimillionaires and billionaires, you're not going to feel this, really. Uh, maybe your great-great-great-grandchildren will, will, you know, take a bite. But, you know, th- there are areas where the administration is amenable and, and where they are not. And we've seen with the approach to macroeconomic policy, um, the fact that they were willing to, you know, tell Larry Summers and, and Jason Furman, you know, economists who were more on the uh, side of wanting to err on the side of, of not risking inflation, really endorsing the goal of full employment rhetorically and in their policy proposals, uh, expansion of, uh, you know, the the child allowance uh, or rather the child tax credit into something that resembles a child allowance. And now we've seen a bit on a, a foreign policy as well in terms of, I think, movement towards full disengagement from assistance to the Saudis in Yemen and, and here with Afghanistan. And I would say that on a lot of these fronts, progressives have benefited uh, ironically. You know, there weren't many silver linings to the Trump uh, years, but two of them were that Donald Trump normalized really sort of expansionary fiscal and monetary policy. The fact that the COVID crisis hit when it did with a in an election year for a Republican president, which thereby gave the president and his party an incentive to actually do a much better response to the COVID recession than Democrats mustered to the 2008 crisis. And then suddenly it's a bipartisan thing to uh, replace uh, people's lost income with uh, almost universal cash payments. And suddenly it's a bipartisan thing to think that the war in Afghanistan should end. And so those developments, I think, Trump sort of opening the door towards things that a significant portion of the Democratic coalition wanted their leaders to do. And in some cases, as with Afghanistan, some that Joe Biden personally, for his own idiosyncratic reasons, had wanted to do. And so both- For like a decade. Yeah. So both the events of the Trump era giving him perceived space uh, that, oh, we can actually not means test relief checks. uh, And there's not going to be a huge blow up about welfare queens uh, because it's no longer the 1990s or whatever. There's been some progress in the media infrastructure or public attitudes or whatever that was demonstrated in 2020. And then, well, okay, we can actually say yes to the progressives in our coalition on this particular subject. Uh, I think that obviously there's other things which uh, are not negotiable uh, at the level or are not winnable at the level of elite discourse um, and sort of the long march through the institutions in terms of getting a more sort of left-wing cohort of uh, experts within the think tanks of the Democratic Party, which is another development I think we've seen, the millennials coming of age in positions of congressional staff uh, and um, executive branch policymaking power. And those things include, you know, as Adam alluded to, fundamentally, we're, we're leaving Afghanistan, but this is, you know, still part of a pivot to Asia and towards a hardline anti-China policy. You know, we're not contesting fundamentals of empire, we're contesting things at the margins. And there is a real risk, I think, that if if it turns out that, you know, the left rallies to Biden's um, defense on Afghanistan and he sees little benefit from that in approval polls and the the blob 
uh, proves that actually it is the more decisive actor. And it also proves that it has a large phalanx of congressional Democrats who will validate and, and make bipartisan opposition to any leftward lurch in on the subject of imperialism or on the subject of foreign policy. This could ultimately go in a negative direction. And, you know, as, as, said, as I said earlier, you know, I mean, we did already have uh, one response of we're going to um, kill, you know, 10 Afghan civilians to maybe take out one um, uh, ISIS terrorist uh, in Afghanistan. So there's, I think there's promise uh, in, in this moment and in, you know, uh, alliance between the, the liberal faction uh, within the Democratic Party and this more uh, hardline um, socialist left. But there's also, it's a very precarious situation because of fundamentally the um, the still existing, you know, it's still a structurally weak tendency within American politics. The socialist left remains a, a weak actor. Uh, and so it's vulnerable to a loss of uh, clout if, if other forces uh, demonstrate their superior strength. Well, Adam Johnson and Eric Levitz, thank you both very much. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yep, thank you. Adam Johnson is co-host of the podcast Citations Needed and the writer at a brand new substack called The Column. Eric Levitz is a senior writer for New York Magazine's Intelligencer. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the ruling ideas are nothing more than the ideal expression of the dominant material relationships, the dominant material relationships grasped as ideas. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky, and The Dig was recorded at WBRU in Providence. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is huge.